Hello everybody, this is Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Aid Radio. I hope you're doing most magnificently. This is the Sunday Philosophy Call-In Show at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, but I bet you already know that because you'll be here or you'll be listening to this afterwards. But if you are listening to it afterwards, you can go to fdrurl.com forward slash call-in to get the information for the next time that we are live on the Sunday shows. So we're just going to do a quick tech check here and make sure that uh, everything is live, baby, live, as the NXS album goes. And uh, the call-in number, most important, is 347-633-9636. That's 347-633-9636. And for those of you who can see uh, the video, this is going to start off with some mental gymnastics, which are very quickly going to flow almost seamlessly into um, physical gymnastics, and I promise when it comes to agnosticism, I will try to stick the landing. So, uh, thank you uh, all for your uh, very interested support and, uh, and uh, enjoyment of the True News series. There's a great uh, series out there that I do on YouTube, which is around healthcare, which I think you might uh, find of interest. And I thought that it uh, might be interesting to, to share a little metaphor with you around the question uh, of religion. I did put a video out, uh, I think it's True News 48, about how uh, George Bush believes that both Gog and Magog, sinister agents of Satan, I believe, are at work in the Middle East, and he started the war in Iraq as part of God's will to have uh, those forces of evil hurled back into the darkness from whence they came, and uh, giving people who have these kinds of psychotic fantasies access to nuclear weapons. Not such a good idea in general. And there was a caller last week, uh, I thought about him a couple of times this week, uh, he was a Jewish gentleman uh, who had some very uh, interesting uh, arguments. Uh, basically, he, uh, he was saying that you need religion in order to, to understand ethics to be good and so on. And yet the strange thing was that when I actually asked him whether he believed that the Holocaust was wrong, he wouldn't answer the question or he, he actually answered it saying, well, it was wrong for me, but it was obviously right for the Germans at the time. Uh, and so on, though, of course, Hitler was Austrian. But um, that, to me, is a very significant response, and it's something that you will often get when you talk about ethics with religious people, because religion doesn't teach you ethics. Religion te teaches you superstition and obedience to purely human authorities, which are infinitely fallible, and it does not teach you ethics. E ethics, in, in the way that I approach it, is a rational, philosophical, quasi-scientific discipline. Certainly it is, uh, I've got to get a free book about this if you're interested at freedomainradio.com forward slash free. But uh, 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 ethics is a philosophical, rational, logical discipline of discovering what I call universally preferable behavior. And religion, of course, doesn't teach you any of that. It simply teaches you superstitious obedience to purely secular authorities such as uh, priests and, and bishops and so on. And so the, the problem of ethics is not solved by adherence to religious dogma any more than the problems, the problems of physics or biology are solved by adherence to primitive, the primitive superstitions of some baked Bedouins from thousands of years ago. So I think it's really important to, to recognize when something is not solving a problem and to make sure that we don't imagine that we've solved a problem. And religion does not solve the problem of ethics. Uh, and religion does not solve the problem of science. It does not solve the problem of knowledge. It does not solve the problem of raising children. All it does is solve the problem <laughs> quote problem, uh, free-thinking, uh, free curious, rational, and skeptical children. So let me give you a very short uh, uh, metaphor, and I think you might find it useful, uh, at least how uh, an atheist and a strong atheist like myself 
views the question of the transmission of religion. So imagine that uh, I was uh, a, um, uh, an elder brother to a, uh, a, a mentally retarded, uh, developmentally handicapped, mentally handicapped, younger brother, five or ten years younger. And because I wanted his lunch money, I showed him torture pictures when he was about six or seven uh, or so. I showed him the torture pictures from Abu Ghraib. And I said to him, Bobby, who my younger brother's name would be Bobby in this scenario, and I said to him, Bobby, these people were tortured because you were bad. Right? These people with the dogs and with the rapes and with the thumbscrews and all of this, they were tortured because you were bad. And you were born bad. And you will be bad and you will stay bad. And invisible ghosts, I say to my retarded younger brother, invisible ghosts will follow you around, peck out your eyeballs and steal your brain if you don't obey me and give me your lunch money. And when you die, you will be pitchfork roasted in hell for all eternity if you don't give me your lunch money and do everything that I say. Well, if you were my parent and you overheard me telling this to my credulous, wide-eyed, terrified, and retarded younger brother, would you not consider that to be absolutely heinous, an absolutely vicious and ugly way for me to get my lunch money and the obedience of my younger brother, to threaten him with invisible demons when he did not have the power because of his retardation. He did not have the power to discriminate truth from falsehood, but it had no, no choice but to trust uh, in me or to believe me or to accept what it is that I was saying. And that is how an atheist views the transmission of religion to credulous, helpless, dependent, and pre-rational children. I'd have no choice. I was shown the gory pictures of cru the crucifixion uh, when I was five or six years old, and I was told, of course, that this was my fault, and, and I had to obey the priest because I was born bad, and so on, right? It is, uh, just, uh, it is just monstrous and a hideous way to transmit a vile, uh, psychologically destructive, uh, soul-crushing, shaming, guilting, uh, corrosive, uh, hideous information to others. The, de the degree to which these crushing and exploitive superstitions are inflicted upon children is the degree to which I have utter contempt for those who teach this to children. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, people have asked me, because I'm a relatively new father, people have asked me, well, are you going to teach your daughter, you know, that the government is this or God is not or whatever, right? And uh, no, of, of course not. I'm not going to, there's no point in me teaching her conclusions, right? I mean, other than, you know, don't go near the fireplace and, you know, no playing with scissors and so on. But there's no, when she, when she achieves the capacity to, to begin abstract reasoning to, to whatever degree around sort of six, seven or eight years of age, there'll be no point in me teaching her my conclusions. That would be to rob her of the joy and efficacy of understanding her own thinking and learning how to reason things out from evidence and first principles for herself. I will teach her a methodology, right? I will not teach her the conclusions. Uh, I will certainly guide her as I see fit uh, if she makes errors, and certainly she may make, uh, I, it's no question she's going to be smarter than me. That's, that's no doubt uh, whatsoever. Uh, and I think that's really important to understand, that uh, uh, when you have kids, it's, I'm sorry? 
Oh, it's come back. We have to so, call yeah, we Steph. Have, there's a caller. All right, let me just finish this up, and uh, I will take the call in just a second. So, uh, so I think that it's really, really important to teach uh, the methodology, not the conclusions. And therefore, since religion is a conclusion, there is no methodology behind religion. There's no reasoning. There's no evidence behind religion. It is a conclusion. And it is wrong to teach conclusions to children. Uh, you want to teach them how to do math. You don't want to have them just mindlessly recite equations and their answers with no understanding of them. And so the only uh, sane way for religion to retain any kind of intellectual integrity is for religious people, religious parents in particular, to not teach their children the conclusions of religion, that they are uh, evil, that they are the chosen people, that uh, they died, Christ died for their sins, that they'll burn in hell if they don't obey the priests and the parents and so on. Um, they don't, you don't teach kids that. What you do is you teach them how to think, and then when they become adults, they can choose their religion for themselves. But of course, everybody knows that if kids are given that opportunity, they will choose no religion almost every single time. So I just wanted to sort of point that out. If you think of someone telling a retarded younger brother all of these terrible superstitions for the sake of exploitation and obedience, we would understand just how heinous that is. It's much worse with parents and children. So that's the view from at least this strong atheist viewpoint. So we have a couple of callers, um, shockingly. Uh, I hope that uh, at least one of them is calling from someplace upstairs with the clouds and the uh, fairies. Uh, so uh, if you'd like to cue the first one up, I would be we happy to hear what you have. We have a caller from a 717 area code. Ah, 717. I remember you well. Hello. 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 Can you hear me? I sure can. How are you doing? I am doing very well. Uh, let me see. I, I have a question for you. Um, isn't, isn't atheism... Uh, doesn't atheism... I mean, there's, there's no real proof that there is no God. So doesn't atheism draw a conclusion? That, that's an excellent, excellent question. Did you want to add more to that? I don't want to, if you want to flesh that out, I'm certainly happy to hear more, but that's an excellent question. Uh, yeah, if you want to flesh that out. Oh, okay. Uh, sorry, I thought, thought you might want to flesh it out, but if you don't, that's, that's no problem. I can just do my best to answer it, and you can tell me if I'm making any sense. Okay. So the, the, the question is, uh, isn't atheism a conclusion, i.e. that there is no God? Well, the methodology of reason and evidence, what I would call philosophy, and of which a subsection it would be something like science, another subsection would be mathematics, and so on. But philosophy accepts conclusions, right? But Because the methodology is designed to get to a conclusion, right? So the methodology of the scientific method is designed to get to a conclusion, you know, E equals mc squared, the objects accelerate towards the Earth at 9.8 meters per second per second, the world is round, and, and so on, right? So you can get conclusions from a methodology. I, you just don't teach the conclusions in the absence of the methodology. And so uh, atheism, uh, yeah, it, it is, uh, certainly strong atheism is the, you know, the, the absolute acceptance of the non-existence of God. But uh, that's really based on, on two things. And there's an easy one and a hard one. And the easy one is that an atheist doesn't have to lift a finger to dif disprove God because the, the burden of proof lies on the person who proposes, right? So if I propose uh, something, uh, uh, you know, God exists, uh, these square circles exist or whatever, then I'm the one who has to prove that everybody else doesn't have to run around uh, disproving things, right? So if I say uh, uh, the world is, is doubling, the whole universe is doubling in size every nanosecond, uh, but the problem is everything is doubling in size, so we can't measure it. There's no way to disprove or prove that, right? Because every measuring device would also be doubling in size and blah, blah, blah. It's not up to the scientific communities 
they, they don't have to drop everything that they're doing and then say, well, gosh, we have to find a way to disprove this non-disprovable thesis. Otherwise, we have to accept that it's possibly true. No, if I say the universe is doubling in size every, every nanosecond, it's my job to prove as to why that's the case. It doesn't, and, and it, if I can't prove that that's the case, it's simply not a valid proposition. So the, the easy answer is that atheists don't have to do anything because the people who propose the existence of a contradictory being, like a consciousness without matter, life without birth, uh, uh, omniscience and omnipotence, which can't coexist in the same entity, then the atheists don't actually have to do anything. If the, if the theists can't prove the existence of such a crazy being, then uh, it simply is, it, it doesn't exist, right? Because, because we don't have to do it. But the second thing is, is to say, well, uh, you know, this is a contradictory being. Contradictions can't exist in reality. There is no evidence uh, for any such being. Uh, there is no, uh, no such thing as life without birth or evolution. And evolution tends to go from the simple to the complex. God is the most complex being in existence, can't have been the starting point of that life form because the starting point of life form is amino acid single-celled organisms which go up to the interject. complexity of the human mind. Sorry, um, go ahead. If, if I may interject, is, wouldn't it be more intellectually honest to be an agnostic because you can neither prove nor disprove the existence of God? No, I don't. I think I know. I don't think it would be intellectually honest, but I'm certainly willing to hear the case uh, if you want to make it. Uh, that's uh, that's been my position. I mean, I am a theist. I do have a religious belief, but that's that's my own personal belief. The problem that I have with the atheist viewpoint is that they are unwilling to concede to the possibility, which uh, there is no proof in either direction of whether there is or isn't a god. Oh no, there, there absolutely is proof that there is no God. Really? I would love to hear it. I would be more than happy to. Well, um, when someone says God, they don't mean X, right? What they mean is, oh, and we, sorry, we've just got a note that the callers are very, are very loud. James, if you could see if you could adjust that volume. Um, so when someone says God, they mean something very specific, right? They don't mean X, right? They mean some, like consciousness without form uh, and uh, eternal life and uh, all-powerful, uh, omniscient usually, or something like that. And so when someone says God exists or even God might exist, they're not saying X might exist, which, you know, we can all accept that X might exist, right? If we define X as, say, intelligent life or life on other planets. Yes, it certainly may exist, and I would be shocked if it didn't. But that is not a self-contradictory proposition. But if somebody says square circles exist, we can be sure that they don't, because that is a logically contradictory proposition. Like if a mathematician says 2 plus 2 equals 4 and 5 at the same time under the same conditions, then that mathematician is simply wrong. I mean, this is completely wrong. So when someone says God exists, they're saying a specific entity with specific characteristics exists or may exist. They're not saying X may exist. And so if they're saying specific characteristics exist, then they have to start providing evidence. Like if I say life without form, without material form exists, then I have to prove that because in, in, in the universe, there is no such thing as life without material form, without any detectable form or energy. And so life is the presence of, of matter and energy. Now, if life has matter and energy, then it's not God, because God is by definition immaterial. But life and immateriality is exactly the same as a square circle, or 2 plus 2 equals 4 and 5 at the same time. 
It's, it's a self-contradictory statement, and therefore it defeats itself the moment it's, that it's uttered. But, but doesn't this move into other planes of existence where such a thing could be possible? Well, um, if you're going to move into other planes of existence, then what you're saying is that which does not exist in this realm might exist in some other realm. Is that right? Yes. But then you can't use the word God, because the moment you use the word God, what you're doing is you're ascribing specific characteristics to that which is completely unknown. Right. So it's, it's like if you can either say this is it's like think of a television screen. You can either say this is static or you can say there's a face in that static, but you can't say both at the same time. So if there's some other plane of existence, then, then there's one of two possibilities. Either we will never know about this other plane of existence. Right. Because it has no impact on this realm. It will never be detectable, which is exactly the same as non-existence. Right. It's exactly the same as non-existence to say there's another plane of existence out there which will never impact this plane, which we will never detect, which we will never be able to observe, which we will never be able to measure. That is exactly the same as saying non-existence. So either that realm will never be measurable in our realm or it will be measurable in our realm, in which case we will be able to explore it scientifically. And then we will be able to sort of understand what's out there. But nobody can use the term God to, to describe anything that's out there, because that's a positive knowledge claim about life and omniscience and non-materiality and eternity and so on. But you can't say anything about these other realms at all, because they are at the moment synonymous with non-existence. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be saying the same thing as, say, 50 years ago, that there are planets around other stars? I mean, you could no, not... No, no, not at all. Yeah, sorry, there were planets around other stars, but yet they're there. Well, sure, but you see, that's like, if, if we had, you know, Jesus walking on water in the real world with a halo, turning water into wine and making loaves and fishes out of, uh, I don't know, California raisin boxes or something, and, and so if we had a living, breathing, honest to God, born of a virgin, back from the dead, looks like a hippie, uh, you know, Jewish zombie God, and then we said, well, because we have this God right here, there could be other gods out there. Well, any reasonable person would say, well, sure, we have this deity right here, and so there could be other deities. Now, of course, we're standing on a planet, right? And so we, we have very empirical evidence of a planet uh, right, you know, right below our feet. And we can see planets around our sun. So we, we, we live on a planet. We can see other planets. Uh, we have a theory of the formation of the solar system. We can see the, the planets that didn't make it in the asteroid belt between Mars and, and Jupiter. And so we can see planets. We, we understand planets. We understand where they came from. Uh, we, we, uh, we can see other planets. So saying there could be other planets around other stars is completely empirically, I mean, it would be shocking if there weren't, right? So we're not proposing anything contradictory because we live on a planet. We say, well, there's other, there could be other planets like this, but there's no evidence of gods. In fact, there's every evidence that gods couldn't, could not conceivably exist. And so to say that they might exist somewhere out there and parallel that with something that we have complete evidence for, i.e. the existence of planets right now, I don't think is a fair analogy. Ah, okay. Um, I've, I have a hard Do you mind if I ask grappling. you a question? Oh, sure, go right ahead. I mean, I'm, I'm really interested uh, and I'm genuinely interested and I, I understand the, the intellectual sparring is, is fun as well, but I'm, I'm always genuinely and openly and honestly curious about 
what what it would mean to you, and, and I'm not saying I've won the argument or anything, right? I know that this is a, a complex argument, but what would it mean to you if there weren't uh, gods or even the possibility of gods or, or devils or, you know, fairies or, or leprechauns or whatever, if, if there wasn't the, the concept of God, I mean, the caller I had last week felt that he would go out and strangle puppies and stuff like that because, I don't know, maybe he wasn't afraid of going to hell or something, although I think he's from a religion that doesn't believe in hell. But what would it mean to you emotionally, if you don't mind me asking the personal question? I know it's personal. You can answer if you don't. You don't have to answer if you don't want to. But what would it mean for you emotionally if you gave up the belief that there was some monster consciousness out there? I don't think it would mean a significant amount. I mean, I, I tend to be a logical individual, though I, like any other individual, I do act illogically at times. Yeah, I've been there. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it, it wouldn't have a major effect on me. Uh, the, the biggest reason why I do have a certain belief in that direction, and I lean more towards the agnostic, is because I've seen far too many things happen in life that go a little bit beyond coincidence because uh, the, the odds of them happening. And I can't think of any specific, specific examples right now, but uh, that's, that's where my... So, so you feel that, uh, you feel that you, or you have a belief, uh, and I, I, I mean, I certainly uh, appreciate your candidness, but you're saying that you have a belief that there's more coincidence in the world that you, that you could explain, that, that you feel that you could explain through sort of statistics. Yes. Right. Now, you, you know that coincidence follows a bell curve, right? So for some people, there are almost no coincidences. And for other people, there are a lot of coincidences, right? Like some people, most people never win the lottery. A few people will win the lottery three times, right? And so for, for some people, there are a, a lot of coincidences, coincidentally, in their life. And for other people, there aren't coincidences at all, right? So, so some people might say, uh, you know, I, I don't know why I had a dream that I shouldn't take this flight. And then I didn't take the flight and the flight crashed, right? And they're gonna say, and, and that may happen to them every year or every month, right? And it just happens to be a mad coincidence that their dreams happen to, I'm not saying for you it's dreams, but whatever it is, right? That these coincidences occur. Uh, you know, I, I, I missed a flight because of X, Y, and Z, and then on the next flight, I met my future wife, right? Or whatever it is, right? And, and everything sort of, for, for some people, a lot of coincidences will stack up in their life, whereas for other people, there will be almost no coincidences. And it might be, if we don't understand that distribution, that people who have a lot of coincidences might be more, they might tend more towards religiosity or, or spiritualism, we could say. And the people for whom there are fewer coincidences, or at least those who understand the, the statistical distribution of coincidences, they may tend more towards rationalism or atheism. Indeed, and uh, uh, and I also, uh, the, along the line of uh, self-fulfilling prophecies, I realized to look for these and to actively try to search for them, you can actually create the illusion in your own mind of thinking that they're happening. So I, I, uh, it's, it's not by a simple fact of I'm doing that because I'm aware of that phenomenon. Right. I, I don't know if you saw the movie uh, Religious by Bill Maher. No, I did not. I, I mean, I think it's worth looking at. He's he's like, ha, 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 joke, joke, joke. And at the end, it turns all kinds of grim, which I think is a little inappropriate. Maybe just came into the room. But um, uh, he's, he, he talks to this guy who, who sells religious paraphernalia in some store. And the guy said, you know, I, I basically became religious when I said, I need rain. And, and then it began to rain. Right. And 
I think we've all had that, you know, of course, we don't remember all the times where we say I need rain and it doesn't rain. But that one time that it does, we get this, you know, we're pattern making machines as human beings. We look for those kinds of patterns. And so uh, I never want to, you know, I never want to take away, not that I ever could, but I never want to take away people's sense of wonder and magic and excitement about the glories and beauties and massively exciting coincidences of nature. So I don't want, you know, if I were to win this argument, so to speak, I, I wouldn't want to take away your, your thrill and excitement about some of the amazing and exciting coincidences in, in life. Uh, and I think some atheists go a little bit too far away from the, the, the beauty and wonder of the world. Uh, but I think that there's more beauty and wonder in looking at coincidences without imagining a divine plan and just marveling at, at how things do sometimes work out or not. Uh, so I, I would just sort of invite you to look at your life Try taking away what I would call the God goo or the glue that holds things together, which doesn't really exist, and just marvel at the amazing coincidences and the wonder that can happen in your life without a divine plan. Because I think it, the divine plan takes away a lot of the wonder in it, uh, which is, I think, much more fun to, to play with. I, I honestly, uh, I, I've, I've had periods where I uh, am, am leaning more towards atheism in my life, and I can honestly still see that wonder either way. Uh, for my for my own personal view, and as as far well, as uh, I, uh, winning an argument, uh, the, the biggest reason why I wanted to call and talk to you about this is because well I've I've been online and uh, maybe you recognize the screen name J A D A M nine one four. I think I might, but uh, go on. But uh, yeah, I've uh, I've I've brought this up a couple times with you, and, and I I think one of the greatest things, and and I and I love what you're doing, is is to bring forth the conversation of it and, and actually delve into it. And, you know, people may not reach where they're going to reach or reach the right conclusions, but things like this help get them there. And I think it's absolutely wonderful. I appreciate that. I really do. And, and if you get a chance and you're on YouTube, I did a video uh, called Agnosticism, the Incomprehensible Halo, which goes into this in, in more depth and unfortunately is not about shooting people on a foreign planet in a video game. So uh, we have a new caller, if, if that's okay. If, uh, I certainly do appreciate your call. Uh, if we move on to the next one, uh, that would be great. I think we have someone from the 666 area code. <sighs> yes, no. Oh, Jimmy, 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 James. Actually, you're close. It's 716. Oh, seven one six. Hello, 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 hello. hello. Hey, hello. hey. All right. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about um, your concepts, uh, specifically forests. All right. So let's do it. All right. Uh, you claim that forests do not exist. It's just uh, trees. Individual trees. Oh, forests. I, I, sorry, I, thought, I thought you said forests. Yeah, yeah, forests and trees. Let's do the forests and the trees and the things between your knees. I think that's uh, very important. So go ahead. Oh, sorry. Let me, let me just do two seconds on that for those who don't know it. Uh, I say that concepts do not exist in the real world. They're mental tanks, which we use to fundamentally group similar kinds of atoms uh, together. Uh, but uh, concepts don't exist in the real world. So I say a tree exists uh, and is, uh, you know, bounded together by strong and weak atomic forces and the cells and so on. But a forest does not exist in the same way that a tree does, because a forest is a concept. Uh, so, but go ahead. You have, a, you have objections with that, and I certainly have heard a number of objections to that. So I, I appreciate you bringing that up, and, and let's, uh, let's hear what you've got to say. Well, first I'd like to ask, uh, do you believe beaches exist? Do I believe that beaches exist? Uh, I believe that sand and water exist. I don't necessarily believe that beaches uh, as a concept would exist. 
Okay. Um, well, I would, I would, I'm trying to think of how, I'm trying to think of what the best way to phrase this is because from my recollection of your Death of Concepts podcast, you, uh, my interpretation of it was not that the, that they are just, um, mental constructs, but they are false concepts, that they, the concepts themselves are, not that the concepts don't exist, but the concepts are self-contradictory. That, sorry, no, I, I'm, very, I'm very much a big fan of, of concepts, but I think my argument is that they don't exist in the real world. And what that means is since concepts are supposed to describe what happens or what is in the real world, if there's any contradiction between a concept and the real world, the real world wins and the concept has to be adjusted. Uh, so I believe in the validity of concepts, but I believe that concepts must always be derived from, either empirically or logically, that which occurs in the objective world. Well, then I don't think I actually disagree with that. Yay! Ooh, yeah, I was hoping Victory. to argue. <laughs> now, now uh, just, you, you may have a problem, since you brought up the forest and the trees, and, and maybe we can talk about this if we don't uh, disagree on the other thing, is um, uh, that people say, well, a tree is, is atoms that are sort of vaguely clung together in proximity, but a forest is also atoms. So how do you get to say that a tree, which is a collection of atoms and cells, exists? But a forest does not, since a forest is just a larger aggregation of, uh, of uh, atoms and trees. And the reason that I would say that is that a, for a tree is a unified set of atoms, right? And, and a, a forest is not. It's just a bunch of things in proximity to each other. It's not like a tree has the same, you know, sap blood vessels, so to speak. It has the same water uh, system uh, and so on. Uh, and it produces the seeds, which, you know grow more of itself, but there's not, a forest doesn't reproduce as a whole, only the individual things do. And the, the, the tree is bounded, bound together very strongly, as you've ever figured out if you try to build a treehouse, whereas uh, a, a forest uh, is not, right? A forest, that's why I call a forest just a conceptual tag for a group of individual things. But those individual things themselves are kind of stuck together very solidly and have very particular physical and biological characteristics that are different from the aggregation of them in the abstract. Um, okay, I can't really argue with that, but just because I feel like arguing, I will try. <laughs> Please um, do. I believe that uh, I believe that forest speeches and other, uh, even social groups, are an emergent phenomenon uh, of the individual creatures, objects uh, that come out of much like free will is an emergent phenomenon of an incredibly complex set of. Our neural uh, of our neurons. Okay, and would you like just for those who don't, who haven't done much in the realm of modern physics, can you tell me what emergent phenomenon means uh, uh, when you use that term? Uh, I'm using emergent phenomenon in the philosophical uh, way, uh, an incredibly complex. Uh, I'm trying to think of how, uh, how to phrase this: an incredibly complex set or interactions which cannot be. Uh, Predicted it. Uh, hold on a second. Hey, honey, how would you describe emergent phenomenon? Oh, if you're going to ask your wife, uh, it may have been a phrase that you used on your honeymoon as in, hey, I got you emergent phenomenon right here. You know, something like that. Could happen. I'm sorry, can you say that again? Uh, no, I won't say that again. Please go ahead with your uh, intelligent stuff. Oh, oh uh, I didn't hear what you said, so I was... I was uh, no, my stuff was complete throwaway, so please go on. No. Well, I was just 
Well, I think I don't really have anything else to uh, say uh, on that, uh, so I'll let you go because I actually have to get ready for a barbecue. Excellent. Well, I appreciate that, and um, have a great have a great barbecue, and thank you very much for the call. Bye. All right. I think we have another caller who is calling from the future. Uh, does Rogaine work there? Well, we have a caller from a uh, 618 area code. 618. Hello, you are on Free Domain Radio. Hello. Jeff? Hello. Uh, Jeff? Oh. Hello. Whoa. Okay. Uh, my. Uh, oh. Yes, he's here. He's on the line. <laughs> okay. Was that your secretary? It's it's very nice when you can get an admin assistant to work on a Sunday. That's uh, that's unusual. She must not be unionized. It's good to know. Okay, sorry about that. Um, no problem. Uh, okay, so uh, my uh, my boyfriend and here are are on the line, and we want some advice, uh, relationship advice. Um, I will do what I can. I will certainly help if I can. What uh, What's the issue? Okay. Um, okay. How do we some? Does it involve an emergent phenomenon? No, I'm just kidding. Sorry. Okay, you, you say. <laughs> no, here. Because I think there are pills for that, but. Uh... It it kind of involves blogs like uh, I'll I'll get like overwhelmed with like uh, sometimes I'll get overwhelmed with like anger or something like that, and I'll get uh, distant and things like that, and I'll go in the other room and things like that. And we went to therapy together, like couples therapy, and they said it was something like emotional flooding or something like that. But Sorry, it, emotional uh, flooding? Was it flooding? Okay, go on. It's like the hormones or something in your body get overwhelming or something like that. I don't know right. if that's true or not, but that's what the guy said it might be. And I'm, I'm guessing that that didn't exactly solve the problem for you? Uh, no, because uh, when I tried to go in the other room today, I, I didn't... I was... I was... I didn't... Uh, uh, I didn't say I need a uh, break or something like that. I just got up and left, kind of. And uh, she got uh, worried, I think. Very, well, you can tell. well, in the first second, like the split second, I felt fear. And then I became angry and um, uh, what, defiant or something. And I tried to stop him from leaving. But then he just, you know, he just went to the other room. So I went... I went there, and I started asking him, like, well, what is your goal in, in doing this? Uh, well, why? well, I mean, I, I, sorry to interrupt. I mean, as you know, I'm certainly no psychologist or therapist, but I do think that philosophy has some very useful things to say about relationships. So we'll try taking a few ideas for a spin. Uh, this is all just theory and nonsense, but, but it might be helpful. Um, uh, so do, do you mind if I call the guy Bob? I hope it's not your real name, <laughs> just so I don't have to keep saying you with the... Uh, dangly okay. bits. Okay. So, okay, so Bob, um, can, can you tell me a little bit about the history that you had growing up, uh, if you did have any history with it, with uh, uh, the kind of aggression that you feel that you display in the present? Like, did you see uh, when you were a kid people acting out in this kind of way, uh, or did, was that around uh, at all when you were growing up? Yeah, my mom, uh, she got kind of distant from my father sometimes, and my father would comment on it and things like that. It, she wasn't like she used to be, and she got she she 
she like didn't want to get her picture taken and she was just distant, I guess. All right, but that's, I mean, that's not the same as the issue that you're having. You're having more of a, a blow up, is that right? But, but your mother's distance is, I'm just trying to sort of understand if there was any precedent that you had for how to behave this way. Yeah, my father was also like, he would explode sometimes, I guess. I think that... It's kind now, of, when you say that you guess, um, I'm not well, sure he, whether... He did. Sorry, he, he did. did. Okay, okay. And um, would you say that there are some similarities between your father's um, uh, expression, for want of a better word, of his uh, temper uh, and, and the way that you acted uh, today or, or other times like today? Uh, well, he, he wasn't exactly quiet. He didn't get quiet like I do. He would, like, yell and stuff like that. Uh, I get more quiet. Oh, so I thought you had more blow-ups, but what you're saying is you have more shutdowns than blow-ups. Is that right? Yeah, but I'm... Yeah, it's not quite a, uh, a blow-up, really. It's more like a shutdown. We just feel awful about it. Right. And we're not sure how to, like, uh, you know, uh, grow past it. Well, uh, yeah. Bob, if I can call you Bob, um, what is it that you think would happen if you didn't you know, shut down or withdraw emotionally. What do you think would happen uh, if you continued to express what you actually thought and felt during these times of conflict? Uh, well, uh, the thoughts that go through my mind are like, I, the thoughts that come up are like, I want to punish her by being silent or something like that. I Okay, and, and if you were to say, sorry, if you were to say, because I don't know, I've got this free book on, on relationships, which I don't know if you've read or not, but I sort of go for you know, real radical honesty in the moment, right? So if you were to say to to your significant other, if you were to say, I, I feel a really strong urge to shut down right now because I'm so angry, I want to punish you by not talking to you. Uh -huh. That's that's an honest statement of, of what's happening, right? Uh, uh -huh. For you in the moment, right? And I'm, I'm very much, that's why it's called real-time relationships, because it's about talking, you know, with, there's a philosophical virtue called honesty, which is, I think, essential for, for any intimate relationship. And it's, it's around being honest in the moment. And acting out is when you're not honest in the moment, but you just act on what you're experiencing, but you don't say what you're experiencing, right? So some guy who's angry, who throws things, he's acting on his anger, but he's not saying, I'm really angry, because if he could say it, he wouldn't throw things, right? And if you can say, I feel an incredibly strong desire to withdraw from you because I'm angry and I don't know how to express it and I want to punish you because I'm mad, that's a way of being really honest with your partner in the moment. Does that, I know that's a really, really quick, I'm not saying that's a full solution, but does that make any sense? Yes. And, and it's that focus, that focus on, you know, continually opening and unpacking your heart in the moment that is so essential in relationships. Because if we don't do that, what we do end up doing is we end up doing this weird kind of dance, you know? We end up doing this kind of manipulative thing where we're trying to achieve an effect by kicking people under the table or doing puppet master things or trying to achieve whatever it is that we want to achieve through, through kind of weak and indirect means rather than directly saying, this is my experience. And if you have the urge to withdraw and you say, I have the urge to withdraw, you've, you've successfully resisted the urge to withdraw by speaking it out openly, if that makes any sense. Yes, I think so. 
And that, that would be, and you know, the book is free, and it's an audio book or a PDF, or it's a couple of bucks for the uh, print version, but the, the audio would be, I think, the audio book, I think, is, is the best way to, uh, to absorb it. But I, I really do think that that commitment to honesty in the moment is so, so, so important when it comes to, um, uh, when it comes to, to fighting these impulses that we have to, to be manipulative. To, uh, to, uh, to withhold or to, to act out. All of these things are around avoiding what is really scary for us, which is saying what we feel in the moment, right? I feel like withdrawing. I feel like hurting you because I'm so angry. If we say it, it doesn't actually happen. But if we don't say it, it does happen in ways that are just, you know, really negative for the relationship. Right. So, so if you walk out of the room, and, and if you don't do it, your partner should do it, right? I think, right? Because we, we are, Lord knows, we're not all perfect in relationships, right? But so if, if, you, if you can't summon the whatever, you know, the, the swinging ball sack to, to, to say it in the moment, then your partner can say, I feel X, you know, I feel really scared, I feel this, I feel that. And through that really honest communication of what your partner is experiencing, it can really open you up to, to being honest about what you're experiencing. And when we're honest about it, we, we don't end up manipulating, because manipulating is, you know, it really hacks at the root of the relationship and should be avoided at all costs, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have a problem, like, um, if I say that I feel like punishing them in the moment, I, I try to calm down instead of saying that, kind of, and I don't know. Like right, and you, you have to reassure, but you have to reassure people, right? So you say, "I feel like punishing you, but not because you did anything wrong. I just, right? It's it's around avoiding conclusions, right? And saying this is, I feel like punishing you, but but not because you did anything wrong. It's just this is what my feeling is. It doesn't mean that it's true. It just means that was what my feeling is. And honestly, unpacking our heart all the time. That is intimacy. You can't be intimate if with someone if you're not honest about what you're thinking and feeling. And I always try to help. Or suggest to people, you know, avoid jumping to conclusions, you know, well, I'm mad because you didn't do the dishes, or, or I'm mad because we never have sex anymore, or I'm mad because you spend too much money, or whatever. And, and when you have the because, you have a conclusion that doesn't actually give the other person a voice. So if you just say, well, I'm mad, and I don't know why, I have this impulse to say, it's because you spend too much money, or whatever, but I, I don't think that's true. I, I don't know that that's true. And, and this is when I became mad, and this is what happened right before I got mad. These are really involved, deep, and, and really enjoyable conversations. You know, when you talk about what you're feeling with respect for the other person without inflicting a judgment or a conclusion on them, if you talk about what you're feeling, it really it, it can be incredibly illuminating, deep, and rich, and bonding conversations, because through that process, you get to know someone in a really deep and intimate way, because you get to see into their heart without all the fireworks and storm and stress of defenses and manipulations. That's an incredibly intimate and, and affectionate and loving thing. And that's what I would really urge when you get these kinds of strong feelings. Maybe it's hormones, but it's not like that doesn't really solve anything in my opinion, but to just keep talking about what you're feeling without jumping to a conclusion about the why. Because when we have the mystery, we can continue to explore until we get to the real root of the problem. Because my solution to relationship issues is not to just white knuckle it and say, well, I'm really mad, but I'm gonna count to 100, I'm gonna take a fistful of quaaludes, and I'm gonna flush my head in the toilet until I cool oh, off, oh. right? That's, that's not the way to solve things in relationship. You need to get to the root of the issues, which may be deep in your history, you may be deep in your heart, 
And that only comes through patient and curious uh, honesty in this in this way. Um, hey, uh, Steph, I... <laughs> Stop talking because we still have problems. Sorry, go on. <laughs> go on. Okay. I, I, I feel annoyed because my partner wasn't giving a whole lot of information. Uh, we, we did read uh, RTR and, and stuff like that, and yeah, we were in total agreement with, with all of that. Um, what happens is like, uh, is like our, our basic failing is we, we can uh, talk about our feelings in most other situations, but occasionally um, we hit this point or, or, or road bump where uh, it, it, we, I don't know, we can't do that. And usually but, uh, what occurs is, uh, like like uh, Bob said, he'll withdraw. <laughs> Maybe it's Bob. Uh, he'll, he'll withdraw and... And then I'll try to pursue him. And uh, I mean, I really don't. I really don't like doing that. Uh, okay. Uh, one thing to put this. Okay. Would you agree, Bob, that when I that that on occasion I've told you how I was feeling? Yeah. yeah. I don't. You responded to it. Yes. Yeah, sometimes I don't. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sometimes I don't uh, respond to it. Right, and that's fine, right? So, so this then, if I can call you Sally, right? So then, what you do, Sally, in my opinion, is is you say when you don't respond to it, I feel X, and now I'm feeling Y. Like you just RTR is not like a tennis game. You know, you RTR and then I RTR and then you RTR and then I RTR because that's surrendering your commitment to honesty to someone else's reactions, right? RTR is just hitting the gas on truthiness, right? It's just hitting the gas on the truth. RTR is, I'm going to keep telling you how I feel. Now, if you respond, great. Uh, then I'll tell you how I feel about you respond. And if you don't respond, then I will tell you how I feel when you don't respond, but I'm just going to continue to tell you how I feel about what you're doing in the moment. I'm going to just keep doing that. I'm just going to keep doing that. I'm going to just keep doing that. And uh, that is, is, I think, the best way to end up changing these uh, these kinds of, of patterns, right? I mean, you, you have to change patterns in relationships, and we all have patterns that we get stuck into. I mean, I do, you do, everybody does. But the way that um, uh, that you, you you break that pattern is, you know, so let's say that, that he gets angry and withdraws, and then you say, well, this is, you don't run after him because that's acting out in the same way that he withdraws. You say, this is what I, I feel that, it, it seems to me like you're withdrawing, or I feel, uh, this uh, in the moment, right? And he'll either respond honestly or he won't. And if he doesn't, then you can say, well, now I feel this and, and I'm not sure why. And, and you just you just keep keep saying what is occurring for you without manipulation, without a desire for effect, without conclusions, but say, this is what my experience is uh, of, of this situation in the moment. And you just keep doing that. And you keep doing that until you break through or break up, which obviously is not <laughs> what, what the ideal thing is, right? But you just, you have that personal commitment to be honest with the people in your life about what you think and feel, your experiences, your preferences, your likes, your dislikes, your loves, your hates. And you just, you just keep being honest and keep being honest. It does not require that other people participate in any particular moment. Your commitment to honesty is your commitment to honesty. If your other partner is not reciprocating in that way, 
then they're just not reciprocating and that's going to cause you to feel something else. But your commitment to honesty is not dependent, like a tennis game can't work if the other person doesn't hit the ball back. But this is not the same as that. This is just a personal commitment to honesty and openness and vulnerability in a relationship. And so if the other person doesn't respond, you just keep telling them how you're feeling. Because otherwise, you, just, you do a little bit of RTR and then you wait for the other person and then it doesn't work. Right? But you just, you just keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. Uh, because that is your commitment to honesty, if that makes sense. Uh, yes, that makes sense. Uh, one problem that I have is in that moment uh, when I'm getting withdrawn and she tells me her feelings, it's like it makes me angrier sometimes. So I, it's like if she tried to do that, I'm worried that I might like just keep withdrawing instead of trying. Well, but 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 as you know, right, the option is not... To, I mean, you have the option to withdraw because we have the option to do anything we want. We can put our hands in blenders if we want. Okay. But uh, if, if you have the commitment, because look, if she has the commitment to honesty and you don't have the commitment to honesty, it seems to me unlikely that things are going to work out in the long run, which is a real shame. I mean, relationships should uh, be happy, close, and intimate and, and, ha and, and good, right? Okay. So you just say, if you feel the urge to withdraw, what do you say? I feel the urge to withdraw. It is so easy, isn't it? This is what RTR is so easy, and yet it's so really, really, it's like UPB. It's so hard, but it's so incredibly difficult at the same time, because all you actually have to do is say what you're actually feeling. That, that's all you have to do, right? Okay, okay. And, and I know it's really hard, because we have these urges to withdraw, to manipulate, because we're afraid so often of that direct uh, intimacy, or we're afraid that if we show vulnerability, we're going to be put down or rejected or whatever, 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 right? But you just, if you say, well, I have the urge to withdraw, you have a choice. You can either then just withdraw, or you can say, I have this real, I mean, an urge to withdraw is not a feeling, right? The feeling is fear, or the feeling is, is, is anger, or really fear of what the anger will do. And so you just talk about what you feel. And, and if, you, if you don't know what you feel, which can certainly happen sometimes, then what you talk about is your physical sensations. I feel a tightness in my chest. I feel a knot in my belly. I feel pounding in my forehead, my hands are shaking, whatever it is that's occurring for you emotionally, if you can't get to the actual feeling, you talk about the physical sensations, which will very often give you uh, a pretty significant insight into what you're actually feeling. But it is just talking about that experience rather than acting the feeling out without communicating it, if that makes sense. Okay, okay. And it's really important to, it is, it is an act of slowing things down in relationships. Because when we act out, we, we escalate very quickly and things move at light speed and we can't figure out what's going on very often because things just accelerate so quickly. But if we kind of slow things down, you know, take that deep breath, you know, just say, okay, hang on, hang on a sec. I don't know what I'm feeling right now, but I feel really anxious. Or I, f I started to feel anxious when you said this, which is not your fault. This is just what, what I began to feel. And then it really escalated when this happened, and, and, and I, I feel now like I can't, I, I don't even want to be honest, I want to run away, which is not fair because, you know, it's not you, these are my feelings, you know, it's just, it's slowing down, concentrating, you know, you can close your eyes, you can look inwards, you can concentrate on what it is that you're actually feeling, and then speak it to the other person, right? And they may reject you, they may laugh at you, right? But if they laugh at you, then you say, well, man, when you laughed at me, my heart sank, uh, I felt nauseous, I felt my teeth rotate, my eyeballs went round and round in my head, whatever it is that you're feeling or experiencing as a sensation, you just continue to talk to the person about 
how you're feeling while interacting with them. Okay. Well, I know that's, that's a lot of hopefully somewhat useful information because obviously there's no way anyone else, I think, can find, I certainly can't solve your problem, obviously, right? But, but what I can say is that in my opinion, and you know, I'm not going to say it's proven, it's just an opinion, but in my opinion, this kind of just teeth-gritting honesty is the best way to carve through to the core of what is going on in relationships. I mean, so often people fight about stuff that just doesn't matter. You know, like who did the dishes, who took out the garbage, blah, 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 who did this, who did that, who didn't put up the fence, who did, like all of that stuff is not what it's really about. What it's really about in relationships is, is fear, uh, abandonment issues, uh, anger issues, you know, family history issues and so on. And I sort of really urge people to not focus on the conclusions like it's because you didn't do the dishes, but focus on the feelings because that will get you to the real root of the conflict as quickly as possible. And when you get to the real root of the conflict as quickly as possible, it's amazing how permanently you can solve it. Uh, hey, Steph, I have one more question for you. Uh, uh, yes, and I uh, just got a reminder because I am not an experienced radio dude. That, and, and so I will take your question in just a sec. The call-in number is 347-633-9636. And uh, so it's 347-633-9636. And uh, please go on with your, uh, with your question. Okay, so um, I there are some people in my ecosystem at this point who want who who are not committed to the success of of the relationship I'm in with Bob. Uh, I guess I'm so sorry. I just I just missed a few words that were really key there. Could you just start that sentence again? There are a few people in my ecosystem who at this point are not committed like uh, to the success of of my relationship with Bob. Um, they like are convincing me that maybe I should just uh, uh, kind of uh, end this and and just go into therapy and and uh, you know learn from this and maybe if it works uh, you know once I get better I, I if if I want to and if he wants to we could try again um, and I, I just wanted to know what you what you thought about that because. Uh, they they are pretty loud voices. There is a part of me that wants uh, wants to continue, and there's a part of me that 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 doesn't so much as is afraid to continue, uh, because of right. Words. No, and I I mean I I've been where you are, on more than one occasion. So um, I really I first of all I mean I sympathize with you both. Obviously you care for each other and you want things to work out, but there's stuff that's you know, like you want to sail north, but the wind is heading south, and it's really hard to tack. So I, I, I really do sympathize, and and no one, obviously, me least of all, but certainly not your friends or your family, in my opinion, can tell you, you know, whether your relationship, uh, whether you should stay in or not in, in your relationship. Uh, but and again, not a psychologist, but I would give you what I have found the most valuable for me, and maybe it will, it will make sense to you. Um, I would say that the sooner you can come to a decision, because it's, it's really tortuous, isn't it? Like, you know, one foot on the dock, one foot on the boat, you know, like, do I stay? Do I go? Is it working? Is it not? Is it, you know, do I pull out the investment that I've got in this relationship and start with someone new? Do I continue down this road and maybe waste more time if it's not going to work out? I mean, it's really a tortuous and, and sort of mind-consuming decision, right? Yeah. 
And my, um, you know, my, my suggestion has always been the same. And, you know, it seems to work. And, and you can tell me, if, obviously, if it does or doesn't. But my suggestion is always that you're in a relationship. If you don't want to leave it right now, then you want to get to whether it's going to work or not as quickly as possible. And the only way that I know how to do that is to be honest and open and vulnerable 24-7 with the person. Right. And have no defenses. Okay. Right. Have, have no agenda, have no manipulation, have no, you know, well, if he does this, then maybe I'll do that. And, you know, don't hedge, don't give, you know, 51% and see if he'll match you or whatever. You know, just be generous, be open, be honest, be vulnerable, be curious, uh, express what you're thinking and feeling in the moment and, and, and just see what happens. Right. Because, for sure, I think if the relationship's going to work, then th- that's necessary. Honesty is necessary in a relationship. I don't think that's a particularly radical statement. But it's not a relationship if you're not honest. Um, so, so honesty is really, really important. Honesty will either cause this relationship to work or it will cause it to not work, right? Uh, and But it will get you there very quickly. And the worst-case scenario is it doesn't work but you've had weeks or months of practice being really honest in a relationship, which will only serve you well, either in therapy or in your next relationship or both, right? So I really always just strongly advocate honesty, 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 openness, 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 curiosity, vulnerability, because that will get you to whether it's going to work out relatively quickly. I don't think there's a faster way to get it. And either you, it works out, which is great, or it doesn't work out, but at least you've got the practice of being really honest and, and seeing where it leads. And then you can avoid that kind of situation. You know, if it doesn't work out in the future, it will be really helpful for your future relationships. And it certainly will accelerate therapy if you've got that habit of talking about what you think and feel in the moment without rushing to judgment. Right. Yes, that, that sounds very good. Um, thank you. You're very welcome, and uh, if you do get a chance, uh, uh, post on the board or, or let us know. You can say Bob and Sally, and uh, uh, let us know how it goes. So I certainly, uh, and, and again, as I always say, um, you know, a really good therapist uh, is, uh, is, is is really essential to this kind of process. So uh, if you can if you can dig up someone who really works, or if you found the person that you talked to is helpful, then I would stick with that. But yeah, I would just make that commitment to. You know, life is too short to be manipulative, right? We we want to to to. To, to seize as much honesty and openness and vulnerability as we can in this life, because that is where the really electric, deep, and, and beautiful connections are. And that's what we want to gather to our hearts in our short catapult through this, uh, through this life. So that's what I would really, really focus on. Thank you so much for the call. It was, uh, it was very interesting. And I hope uh, that, it was, uh, that my opinions were of some help. Yes. Thanks again, Steph. All right. Do we have... Do we have another call? Yes, we do. Or a caller from, oh, wait a minute, hold on. Yes, from 540 area code. 540. Oh, Mordor. Go ahead. 540. Hello. 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 Am I on the air? <laughs> you are near the air. What yeah, can I do for you? I've got my computer turned down, so I can't tell. Um, uh, yeah, 540 is in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. But anyway, um, I, I just had a uh, a question about uh, 
you know, I don't want to get into the issue. You were talking about ethics earlier. Um, you know, that that's a broad subject. I don't want to get into uh, relativism, subjectivism, and so forth. Um, but uh, I do, I do, I am interested, you, 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 with the last car especially, you talked about opinions and feelings and so forth, and I believe this and I believe that, or I think this or I think that. And what I'm trying to understand is, and I, and I appreciate what you're saying too, even though I am a theist, I can uh, I, I can appreciate uh, uh, what you're saying. Uh, I just think, and, and as a theist, my I think I think the duty of Christians or theists in general, whether is to. I, I just want to ask your question. What do you think on this? I think that our major problem is theists. I don't see it as a problem, but I see it as an obstacle. As apologist, is to, and this is going to get very technical, maybe for some people, and maybe you can flesh it out and make it easier to understand, is the phenomenal and noumenal world. Uh, is to break down Kant's wall, in a sense, or, or Hume's gap, if you want to say. But, um, but you know, what, what, what do you think about the concepts of, 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 the, of an, I, an a priori structure of, you know, human reality? Uh, that that is based on sense perception. It cannot only be based on sense perception, but there has to be an aspect of sense perception, and there has to be, you know, even even even. Uh, I want to throw this in before you answer that. Even um, even. Uh, excuse me, I'm, I'm thinking of Hume all of a sudden, but I'm trying to think of um, Kant because Kant's critique of pure reason, as you know, is uh, was revolutionary. Uh, 300 years ago. I mean, it was a shot heard around the philosophical world in a sense. But anyway, that's my feeling. And I majored in philosophy also at the University of Virginia. But anyway, um, what, what, uh, what do you, I mean, what do you think about that concept that um, uh, Kant said that his argument Left, Kant was an agnostic, he said, because he felt that his argument actually helped the Christian faith, or helped in general, because it left room for God. Even Stephen Hawking says his concepts of physics leave the concept for a room for a God. Um, it might just, I've thrown a lot at you, but anyway, go ahead. <laughs> Sure. Uh, so, to to break down the technical aspect, to, to some degree, is that that Kant said there was a sort of more immediate sense perception, but then there was this higher noumenal reality, which can be roughly analogous to, you could say, the world spirit of Hobbes. Uh, certainly, it would be analogous to Plato's forms, right? So, the, the question that philosophers have wrestled with for quite some time is, uh, how do we develop concepts? And there's there's two main answers in philosophy. The first is I see a whole bunch of chairs when I'm a kid, and I eventually figure out what they're for, and my sense of perception gives me the, you know, like a four legs, a seat, a back, or whatever. And that's how I know what a chair is. And the problem is, uh, the reason that that is so strongly resisted by theists, and philosophical theists in particular, is because if concepts are derived from sense perception, then God is an error, because God is not derived from sense perception. There is no sense perception that will ever give you evidence of a deity. And so the, the Lockean view or the Aristotelian view is that we derive uh, concepts 
from a blank slate mind, so to speak, by, by observing things in the world, and then we, we figure out what they have in common, and we develop these concepts. But that nukes things like uh, governments, uh, it nukes things like gods, uh, and a whole bunch of other uh, what I would consider to be nonsensical or anti-rational things. And so when this empirical view was really gaining traction in the 16th and 17th and 18th centuries, um, Kant was a reactionary. You say it was revolutionary. I would say it was retrograde because it's throwing people back to a more primitive and superstitious time where they believe in an overmind because really that's what uh, the higher reality is. And uh, so he, he had the express intention of saving religion from scientific rationalism, from objective um, principles, from, from uh, uh, reason and evidence, right? Because if you go with reason and evidence and sense perception, there's no such thing as a god or a forest or a whatever, right? It doesn't mean the concepts are invalid. But Kant specifically made it his mission to, uh, to save the world of platonic forms through this uh, new amenal realm and so on. And so is that, a, you, 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 I mean, you studied it perhaps more recently than I did, but is that a fair characterization of the two? Now, if, if there is, if sense perception is, is only one aspect of human knowledge, and there's another higher realm of human knowledge, as Plato would argue, he'd say, well, why do we know what a chair is? Well, before we were born, we were floating in a perfect world of forms, and we saw the perfect ideal chair, and then when we look around in the world that we live in, we then see a chair, and we have this vague memory of this higher form, and that's where uh, uh, gods, uh, or a god, could live, is in this realm of, of higher form. So they say, well, sense perception is only valid for the material world, but there's this other world, this higher world of, of ideals and, and pure thought and, and, and uh, platonic forms and new amenal realms and so on, and that's uh, another aspect of knowing, and that's how we come to know uh, God, which obviously everybody accepts there's no sense perception for, but we know God because of this higher realm, and it's not just God, but there's other things as well. The nation-state, as Hobbes would say, the divine divine will manifesting itself through a race or, or a religion or something like that. And uh, sorry, go ahead. No, I mean, I mean, unless, uh, I mean, unless that, uh, you know, with all due respect, unless you're creating a new philosophy of your own. Um, and and yes, I agree that uh, I personally, as my own opinion. You will hear philosophers say that Kant bridged the rationalists and the empiricists, okay? I don't think that. I think that Kant was an empiricist, not a rationalist. Um, and you say you're a pure rationalist. No? Well, I mean, it depends how you use the term, right? So rationalists, uh, I used to mean reason and evidence, but some people use rationalists in the Cartesian sense that, uh, you know, there's a world of, of, of thought that exists somewhere outside of our heads, like this, this Plato's world of forms, and that uh, it is through pure reason uh, that we can uh, you know, create an understanding of things and we don't need evidence. So uh, I am very much into the science and empiricism and arguments, rational arguments from first principles. I completely, totally, utterly, specifically, and almost contemptuously reject this higher world of platonic forms and the new amenal realm and so on I consider it a vestigial superstition from the infancy of our species. I do not consider it to be valid in any way, shape, or form, uh, scientifically, logically, empirically, or in any way, shape, or form, philosophically. I would not say that, that it is valid at all. Uh, in fact, I spent a good deal of my philosophical energies battling against uh, this uh, concept that there's uh, an alternate realm of knowledge, a higher realm of thought, or anything like that. To me, uh, if it can't 
uh, be rationally deduced, it can't be scientifically, if there's no physical or sense-based evidence for it, it no existy in any way, shape, or form. I'm not willing to create an attic alternative universe where that which doesn't exist in the real world can be claimed to exist in some other realm. Uh, I just uh, reject that hook, line, and sinker, top to bottom, back to front. Uh, and so, um, so whatever you want to call that uh, is, uh, you know, it's tough to create a movement after me because my last letter of my name is silent, so <laughs> nobody knows, right? Uh, somebody called it Stethics, which I thought was pretty funny, but, uh, but yeah, that's, that's my approach, that I would specifically reject these higher realm forms. Can I make Sorry, one, last, one last comment? Um, uh, the thing that, I, there is one thing that Kant finally did uh, say that he could never, and I want your view on this, he did say he could never um, ra he could never reconcile this with his own views of agnosticism or atheism, whatever you want to say, is, was the teleological argument, the argument from design, um, that this universe runs too perfectly, uh, everything runs on time. Everything is too perfect in this universe. Everything is too, works too great. I mean, every you know, 365 days a year. I mean, 24 hours in it, nothing changes. The orbits don't change. The the way that the you know way way that we uh, revolve and and uh, go around the sun, uh, it's not going to uh, change. Everything is perfect in a sense. Um, what what as an atheist, how would you how would you defend against the teleological argument? Right, and and so to to for those who don't know the argument, uh, it is that you know if the Earth were a million miles further away or a million miles closer to the sun, that we couldn't have the right temperature. If the Earth was a little bit larger or a little bit smaller, we'd have too much oxygen or too little oxygen in the air to support carbon-based life forms and. And, you know, if, if the specific gravity of, of water was slightly different, right? So it's almost like everything has been designed to create uh, a, a human being. And, and, and so uh, we, we can't accept that as pure coincidence because there are way too many coincidences that result in human life for us to say this is simply blind accident. Is that a fair, again, I know it's a complex argument, but is that a fair summary of it? Okay. Oh, he must have turned his computer back on. So let's assume that it is a fair summary, and you can tell me if it's not. But um, uh, I think that it's uh, not. A, 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 I don't think it's even a bad argument because a bad argument. That's a, something that Dawkins says about a really bad theory. It's not even wrong. Right? It just doesn't make any sense. So but let's just say there's some, you know, uh, uh, water molecule or whatever, right? And it's in the depths of the ocean, and then. It, uh, uh, it, uh, it is sucked up through uh, evaporation into the clouds, it bonds and has some sort of nasty weather sex with a, a, a dust particle, turns into a drop of rain, and it falls down and it goes splurp right on the not-so-small target of my uh, large forehead. Well, that, that raindrop is going to sit there if it were conscious, and let's say that it really wanted to, to land on my forehead. It would say, my god, think of the, the, the odds against me landing on Steph's uh, speckly forehead. Uh, I, I mean, <clears throat> it's a tiny target and blah, blah, blah. And so that one raindrop that does fall on my forehead is going to be that much more likely to say, my God, someone, someone guided me to that forehead because I really wanted to go there and boy, the odds of me actually hitting it were just so tiny and blah, blah, blah. But the reality is that uh, some drops of rain are going to hit my forehead. And those drops of rain aren't designed to hit my forehead. They just do. And there are billions and billions and billions of other raindrops that don't come anywhere near my forehead. 
And in the same way, we can look at the universe and uh, we can say, well, yeah, this planet uh, has uh, been so, so coincidentally there that it produces life. But uh, what about Mercury? What about Venus, which is coated in a heavy haze of acid? Uh, what about uh, Jupiter, you know, a gas planet uh, three quarters on its way to becoming a second sun? What about the moon? What about, uh, you know, every, the, the, the 10 billion asteroids out there in the asteroid belt and the maybe planet Pluto and like, all these kinds of things, right? If God wanted to create a universe that, or a God wanted to create a universe that, um, was supposed to support human life, then why on earth is there so much of the universe that doesn't, right? Like uh, uh, the infinite spaces between the planets, the even more infinite spaces, uh, if you'll pardon the mathematical error, the even more infinite spaces between the stars, right? Stars themselves don't, uh, you know, don't uh, obviously can't support life because they're so wicked hot, right? So I think that it is, uh, I don't think we want to mistake the raindrop falling on the forehead as some sort of plan, because if that was the plan, then there should all the rain. If all the raindrops fell on my forehead, I would be impressed. But uh, um, it is certainly not the case that the world was designed for us to live on it. It's just that the world happened to be in such a situation that life uh, could and did develop, and uh, it wasn't. There wasn't an asteroid that blew up the world or anything like that, and the sun didn't go supernova, and so on. And so because we happen to be on this incredible coincidental planet, it seems like, like the, 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 the drop of rain that falls on my forehead, it seems like a plan. But, uh, you know, objective, when you look at the universe objectively, I mean, it's just plain not. I, 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 I really don't. I mean, with respect, I really don't know how that answered the uh, teleological argument with uh, uh, with great um, insight necessarily. I I I don't know what, what um, I mean. You only know these things because astronomy tells you that these things are true. Um, uh, you know, we've never been up there. We've never been to Venus. We've never been to these planets. However, having said that. Um, and I'm going. What I'm saying is also going I'm on. I'm sorry. Sorry, you're saying that there could be like I'm going on the basis of science as, as well as you are, um, and I'm using what what we know to be as a basis. But um, you know, to say that other planets don't have life, as as far as we know, I mean, is is not necessarily an uh, an adequate argument. I don't think against the argument from design. Well, I mean, that, no, that's sorry. Your I, mean, own, that, I mean, that's your own opinion that uh, if, if God wanted to create a world, that why does he inhabit all the places? I mean, that's kind of a, with respect, that's kind of a silly argument against the teleological argument. I mean, we're talking about God. You know, you're a philosopher, I'm a philosopher. These guys debated these things for centuries. And to say that, you know, that those are your reasons against it, uh, even Kant couldn't do that. Um, so anyway, but uh, well, but you understand, you haven't actually advanced an argument against anything that I've said. All you've said is that it's wrong, which is not philosophical, right? And remember, these guys were writing before there was any coherent theory of the origins of the universe, when the majority of the human population believed the the, the Earth was six thousand years old, and before you know the great breakthrough of secular humanism, which was evolution, right? So they they lacked 
an argument as to, uh, or an understanding as to how life could arise in the absence of a, of a divine creator. And the, you know, the watchmaker argument that the eye is so complex, it could, you know, it could only have, you can't have a watch without a watchmaker and so on. But, but we're on the other side of that now. I mean, we've had the, the secular, rational, philosophical, scientific breakthroughs of, uh, you know, the quantum physics, of, of, uh, of evolution, uh, of uh, some of the origins of the universe theories, which people are still uh, working very hard on. So uh, the teleological argument arises again from the infancy of our species when we simply had no concept about how these things could come about. But uh, science has fantastic explanations about how all these things came about. The, the necessity of having a, any kind of divine hand in the equation is, is, is simply doesn't exist. There's simply no need for it. I can certainly understand why in the 18th century or even the first half of the 19th century, people would have a big problem with understanding this stuff and would be tempted to put uh, a, a guard in the machine, so to speak. But, I mean, it's not necessary anymore. We have uh, more than enough understanding to, to accept how all this stuff came about and the complete unnecessary uh, uh, input from any kind of uh, ghost or divine being. Well, thanks for thanks for taking my call. I appreciate it. I appreciate it uh, as well. As you brought up some very very interesting points. Thank you. All right. I think we have another caller from five four zero. I believe that's Hawaii. Actually, uh, no, it's four one five. Four one five. So close to me, and yet so far. Go ahead. Hey guys. Um, this is Bean in San Francisco. Oh, hello from San Francisco. How are you doing? I'm doing fabulously, thanks. So, um, Stefan, I had a question for you um, regarding your thoughts on objectivism. I imagine you're pretty familiar with the writings of Ayn Rand and especially um, Atlas Shrugged, since it's become like the biggest hit ever now. Um, this I am a, I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of objectivism. I am a monster, uh, you know, I worshipped at the feet of the Rand for many years and uh, still hold her uh, in extraordinarily high esteem as both an artist and a philosopher, so, you know, uh, it's, uh, I, I, I think she was just a living goddess of rational thought. I mean, yeah, she made mistakes in my humble opinion, yes, Lord knows I'm sure I have as well, but, uh, uh, so just so you know, I'm very familiar with objectivism and have, you know, massive, massive respect for it, so, and, and Atlas Shrugged, I think, is just a work of stone genius, but... Uh, so if that, that's just to, to tell you where I'm coming from, but, but please go ahead. Well, it sounds like, so you kind of sort of like her. Oh, I mean, more than like her. I mean, I think, <laughs> I think she's fantastic. I think she had some weaknesses in ethics and politics, but, you know, compared to the sum total of her achievements, that's like saying the sun has some sunspots and therefore it's dark. So, uh, no, I am a huge fan of the Rand and, uh, you know, massive props and respect for what she did. Uh, and if I can do, uh, you know, a hundredth of it, I'll consider myself, uh, a, 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 it's a well-lived life. Yeah, no, I concur. And I actually got your passion because you dived right into that conversation. So I obviously knew right away that you are a huge fan of Ayn Rand. So. And what it, where I was going with that is, um, you know, Atlas Shrugged has become very popular as of late, which, you know, I read that back in 10th grade, which, you know, without giving away, well, I might as well. That was like maybe, when was 10th grade? 17. So about, um, yeah, 20 years ago. And um, since then, you know, it, you, you met very few people in that day that had, had heard of Ayn Rand, forget read Atlas Shrugged, which is a humongous book, as big as Gone with the Wind. But unfortunately, you met more people that had read Gone with the Wind versus Atlas Shrugged. <laughs> 
So right. now that being said, it's like now it's made this huge comeback, and it seems like there are a lot of people waking up, and Glenn Beck says that constantly. I don't know how you feel about Glenn Beck, but I'm thinking perhaps you feel about him the same way that you feel about Ayn Rand. Um, but, you know, he's been saying a lot about the fact that um, – there are people waking up. There's a lot of uh, there's there's a lot of uh, doubt, fear, uncertainty, and doubt regarding the new healthcare plan. And I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but um, what I really wanted to ask you was, Alice Shrugs was a serious, and I think this is the reason why a lot of people are buying this book off the shelf right now. Is it was a serious preview into what's going on right now in our quote-unquote free market. Um, the free market is taking a nosedive into socialism, in my opinion, and I think a lot of people's opinions, and I'd love to hear yours. Um, and so, you know, what is what, what are your thoughts? I'd love to hear what you've got to say regarding um, the so-called dive into socialism as well as the departure from free market into a very, very big government well, I mean, I, I think it is it is the immediate and essential issue of the times. And, uh, you know, in my personal opinion, uh, you, you know, in Atlas Shrugged, there's that amazing machine that um, John Galt invents, uh, which draws electricity out of the static in the atmosphere. I never quite understood it, but it was like a magic machine that uh, uh, um, was invented that he left in the ruins of the 20th century motor company. Very subtle metaphor, Miss Ray. And uh, um, that'll, you know, he, he abandoned it because he didn't want the looters, right? It was gone with the wind, was like, uh, frankly, my looters, I don't give a damn. But uh, he left that behind and just abandoned it because he didn't want to give more wealth and energy and power to the looters. So that's, that's how it worked in the book, if I remember rightly. And to me, that's computers, right? Computers are the, um, uh, what this uh, static uh, electricity generating machine was in that abstract. It just allowed the looters to uh, last another generation. They simply wouldn't have been able to do it without computers, because computers have made people incredibly more uh, more efficient. This is how we're, of course, talking. Uh, and uh, computers, of course, unfortunately, uh, everything that the free market creates is uh, is raped by the government and used and turned then on the people, right? So uh, so computers are invented uh, by the free market, and uh, and the, the uh, internet is certainly commercialized by the free market. And what does the government do? Well, it then ends up with deductions at source and incredibly complicated tax programs and uh, ID trackers for people and so on. So everything that is invented by the free market is handed over to our masters and used to further enslave us, which is why you simply can't have a government or you can't have a small government because they'll just take over whatever the free market produces and use it to enslave people. So I think that uh, uh, why has it been, what, 50 years or 60 years since Atlas Shrugged came out? The reason that, that society lasted as long as it has, as it has the reason that the, the looting uh, thugs have, have ruled as long as they have, is because, I think, fundamentally because of the creation uh, of, uh, of computers and a few other things, but I would say computers in particular. And um, so, so I think that that's why it's lasted so long. I think it's important to recognize that it's important to be precise about the terms that we're using. And these are very broad ways of looking at it, but um, socialism is, is private profit and private industry. Uh, sorry, sorry. Socialism is, is public profit and public uh, labor, right? So uh, if, if the government uh, owns the doctors, right, if the doctors all work directly for the government and the government sets all of their wages and they, you know, like the post office or whatever, then that's more on the lines of socialism. But where there's public money and private profit, 
that is really in the realm of uh, fascism and uh, where, where sort of private corporatism uh, sucks the money out of the government teats and uh, the blood out of the uh, citizens' veins. So I think it's really important to, uh, to focus on the, the technical terms of being correct. What is being proposed in the United States, which is government funding with private uh, industry uh, in, in, the, in, in collecting a good deal of the profits, is, is really along the model of fascism. Uh, it's completely unstoppable, uh, you know, uh, in my opinion, because people have just been—they've become so broken, so, despair, so so much despair, so much disillusion, and so uh, so shattered that they can't stand up for themselves, and they're just looking like pitiful puppies to grab whatever crumbs spill from the master's table, and they wouldn't think, dream of, of of rising up philosophically and intellectually and fighting this stuff at its source, and uh, so uh, so I, I think that it's it's going to happen for sure. But the way that I see statism at the moment, if you've ever seen, I think it's Terminator 2, where uh, the, 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 the Terminator goes into that vat of, uh, uh, of lava and is all like, ah, it goes through all of these different incarnations and so on. It's just trying to uh, come up with whatever crap it can fling at people in order to get more power because the ship is going down, right? They're just... It's making up whatever they lies they can make up because everybody gets deep down that there's no way the system is going to last. There's no way. What is the deficit in the U.S. at the moment? It went from four or five hundred billion to one point three trillion under Obama. I mean, come on. Government's taking over banks and government is taking over car companies. And I mean, this is this is the end of the road for statism. This is the end of the road for statism. And this is why we have to continue to, I think, shout as loud as we can that the problem is violence, the problem is, is force, the problem is brutality, the problem is the gun in the room that nobody talks about. So I think uh, Ayn Rand was prescient, I think she was, uh, uh, you know, I, I virulently and vehemently disagree with the solution at the end of Atlas Shrugged, which is to rewrite the Constitution, like it's a magic spell that can stop bullets. Uh, I think that she could not get uh, to, to a stateless society, which is where she needs to get to, right, the non-initiation of force is no government. That is the fundamental uh, corollary to that axiom. She couldn't get there for a variety of reasons, and I've got a whole podcast series on this in the premium section about why I think she couldn't get there, which is, again, just my opinion, with all due respect to her genius. But uh, I think that Iran is dangerous because she so accurately identifies the problems of violence, and then as her solution, she says, we need a better government. And uh, I think that's a tragedy, uh, and it's, you know, an error that I'm doing my own best in my own small way to try and counter but uh, I think that uh, uh, I, I think that she was just magnificent, uh, I think that uh, the expansion of the government has nothing to do with providing health care, it has everything to do with just trying to grab as much money before the whole system collapses, which is what in many ways the war is, why the war has lasted so long uh, so those are my thoughts on it, uh, what, what do you think? Oh, I'm sure I lulled her to sleep is she back? Is she back? Wait, wait, sorry. Are you guys looking for me? Uh, yeah, I was just wondering if you uh, had any additional thoughts that you wanted to add. I sort of was spewing out you my know, random bits so of brain candy. Here's why. So it's really unclear on the phone. I think, um, James, you'd asked for feedback previously regarding the quality of the sound. On the phone, so I'm on my cell phone right now, but it's nothing to do with my cell phone provider. It's just on the phone, the quality of voice really sucks. But So I could barely tell what you were saying, Stefan. And then if I went on to Blog Talk Radio, which is online, which has a bit of a delay. So I 
Yeah. So I was still listening to what you were saying, but I had my phone to my other ear in order to make sure I didn't miss a question or something like that. So it's a little confusing. But so if you well, I'll tell you what. Uh, I'll put this out as a podcast, and you can uh, you can listen to that. It should be out tomorrow or the day after, and the sound will be fine because I'm recording sort of the mic uh, from from home. So that you know, then you can give me some feedback if you want, either on the board or, or by email, which I could read out in another podcast if you had any additional thoughts about it. But I mean, yeah. I think everybody should read Ayn Rand, but I think everybody should read Ayn Rand and focus not on the conclusions that she had, but rather on the methodology that she had, reason and evidence and the non-aggression principle. Yeah, I think I could tell a part of what you said, because now I'm on my cell phone, but um, yeah, she definitely had some really intelligent thoughts. I mean, forget that. The woman was a genius, in my opinion, way ahead totally. of her time. Um, totally. And, you know, when I read that back in 10th grade, I read the first 50 pages about twice. I couldn't get through. Like, my brother gave me the book because he thought I would really love it. And um, I went through, you know, the first few pages the first time. The second time I went through 50. The third time I actually got through the whole book because once I got past the first 50, I was hooked. Um, that being said, you know, um, there are places where I thought it was kind of rigid and um, very so much idealistic that I don't know it could come to terms in a real society because, unfortunately, everybody's not an idealistic individual. So you've got to find a balance of some sort. Um, but that being said, you know, you get that question all the time, which is if you could have dinner with one dead person, who would it be for me at Ayn Rand? Yeah, and I, I think, I, I mean, I think a lot of, I, I, I prefer the Fountainhead to Atlas Shrugged, because I, I think Atlas Shrugged is, I think, I think she bit off a little more than she could chew, which is, again, just a personal opinion. But I, I think the stuff that I found the most interesting in, uh, in Atlas Shrugged was, were the family relationships, you know, between um, Hank Reardon and, and Lillian and, and Hank's brother and his family and, and so on, where... Uh, the, the, the ethics of the family was, was really explored and the degree to which someone's personal freedom was tied into their relationships with those around them, that's, that's, I mean, that's where I got an, an enormous amount of value out of, uh, out of Atlas Shrugged and even more so than, um, than The Fountainhead. Because in The Fountainhead, you know, Howard Rock is just born like John Galt, he's just born this perfectly pure human being and there's no struggle and there's no self-knowledge and there's, like, it's just perfect, right? And, and so... And she, of course, would say, my characters are not prescriptions for action. She was a romantic, so she put out these ideas. But, I, I, you know, and, and when you think about Atlas Shrugged, at least when I think about it, I, I couldn't, I mean, this, you know, I don't run railroads. I don't, uh, I, don't, I don't have anything to do with politics. I don't, you know, I can't change the world that way, that way. And I don't think anyone can, except for the worst. But what I do have is, uh, or what I guess I had, was relationships with people in my life who, uh, according to the, the values that I held, were not you know, honest, didn't have integrity, and, and in many ways were corrupt. And what I got out of Atlas Shrugged, which I think is, you know, everybody looks at the big political stuff and the economic stuff, and that stuff is fantastic. But what I really got out of Atlas Shrugged in terms of my own journey towards freedom was the constant emphasis to look at your personal relationships, to look at your personal relationships, to look at your personal relationships. And that's where I began to really put a lot of my efforts in uh, as a philosopher and as a thinker and as an actor uh, in my own personal relationships. Um, uh, you know, H H Hank Reardon tries for the whole book to reconcile things with his wife and his family uh, and continually is rejected and exploited and humiliated and put down and so on. And then he finally gets that his freedom is freedom from corruption from those around him, not 
freedom from the state, which we can't achieve. But we can achieve freedom from the corruption of those around us if, uh, you know, if they can live more honestly and so on. And so I think that people focus a lot on the big brain-spanning economics and politics and monster stuff of the whole world in that book. But what I got out of it was what I could do in my own life, in my own personal relationships, to either make them better uh, or to, to view them as, as optional. And uh, I think that's a very underappreciated aspect of Ayn Rand. Everybody loves to focus on the big intellectual, philosophical, economic, political stuff, which we can't really do anything about. And everybody just kind of likes to go past or step around her continual focus in all of her novels, from We the Living to uh, uh, to uh, Anthem to some degree, to, to The Fountainhead in particular, and to Atlas Shrugged almost exclusively, her focus on uh, liberty within your personal relationships as a foundation or a condition for liberty within your life. And I just thought that was, uh, uh, that's what I really focused on and really got out of, which I could actually act on, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, I, you know, you just hit the nail on the head there when you said, um, look at your personal relationships, because personal relationships could be, well, friends, people you work with, um, anything really. And the relationships and the people that you keep around yourself are so um, very vital to your own mindset during a daily routine or just during your life. So um, I concur. I concur. I think that, you know, maybe you actually hit the nail on the head because I never thought of it that way. But she does put a lot of emphasis on the people in, um, in the lives of people in her, you know, the characters in her book, like Dagny and Hank and... Um, and they only they only um, they only socialized with people that were on their um, on their level of you know the, the way they thought they were on the same level of thinking and their the mental frequencies were matching. So yeah, I think you just pretty much hit the nail on the head. And we take it a lot into the business world, but it's very personal. And you know when you're passionate about your business and you're passionate about what you do, well, it's personal. Right, right, right. And, and that's the stuff that we can actually have some effect on, and that's where our values can really gain some traction. And, uh, and she was constantly saying that if you live out of integrity in your personal relationship, it doesn't matter where you live with integrity elsewhere, you're still going to be unhappy. Right? So, so Dagny and Hank and the other people who lived with incredible integrity in their business relationships and lived without integrity in their personal relationships were miserable. Right? The, the, the professional successes did not make up for the lack of integrity in their personal relationships. And that, I think, was something that Rand was continually focusing on. And again, I think it's unremarked because people want to avoid that stuff in many ways because it's the most challenging aspect of philosophy is one's own personal relationships, the relationship between values, integrity, and those people that we have in our lives is really, really tough and complex. And people like to focus on the abstract stuff we can't do anything about rather than the really personal stuff that we can have an effect on. But that's what I really got out of Atlas Shrugged was not to run for office and, you know, fix the constitution, so to speak, but to, to, to live with integrity, honesty, curiosity, and resolution in my own personal relationships. And I, I think that's what people should get the most out of from that book, but it seems that they, they rarely do. Hear, hear. I concur. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Testify, sister. Well, is there anything else you wanted to add? I certainly do appreciate that. It's a great call, and I mean, I'm always happy to talk about the great Rand because she's, uh, you know, was a, a a huge, huge foundational inspiration to me as a thinker. Well, no, I mean that conversation could go on forever. I have a lot I could say about her philosophies, but I think you really nailed it. So, um, I don't have anything to add. I just say, I mean, thanks for um, 
thanks for being out there. You sound like a really strong and good voice out there. Well, I appreciate that, and uh, thank you very much for those kind words. And uh, I guess it's nice to hear from another uh, another 27-year-old. Just kidding. All right. Well, thank you very much. Do we do we have another caller, or is it uh, time for Ramble Tangents, Spittlefest? It is time for Ramblings. Ramblin' Tangents, Spittlefest. Well, we've got 23 minutes to fill with verbiage. Of course, we have 36 people in the FDR chat room. Uh, let me read out the number once more in case anybody wants to call in and uh, put on the BCF Heckalorama hat. Uh, the number, the call-in number, we have time for you know, more question, comments, criticisms, whatever you like. The number is 347-633-9636. That's 347-633-9636. Okay, no ramblings. We do have a caller from an 818 area code. Call, you're on the air. 818, you are a palindrome. Please, go ahead. Hello. Sorry, I couldn't quite hear it. Did you ask what I'm wearing? Just kidding. I'm wearing a t-shirt and sweat. There is a caller. No. 818. There is a caller. Can, can you hear me? Echo. Steph, you so sexy. Yes. Oh, wait, no, sorry, this is on video. People can hear me, hear me, see me saying that. All right, well, I will continue, and we'll see if this person uh, will, uh, will drop it. Um, and, and it's sort of based on, on uh, what, uh, what this last uh, uh, intelligent young lady was, was bringing up around and around and what we were talking about there. You know, I mean, people, you know, get a little surprised when I talk about, you know, personal relationships and so on. And I think it's interesting. I mean, philosophy has had a lot to say about personal relationships and, and love and intimacy and so on ever since the Symposium, which was a book that Plato had Socrates speak for him, uh, which was written, I don't know, what was that, 2,400 years ago? So uh, I think that is uh, something that uh, it's important to remember. Philosophy has a, a long history of uh, uh, trying to bring virtue to bear in the sphere where we have the most effect, which is in our personal relationships. Um, voluntarism within the family is something that people are surprised to hear me talk about. Uh, it is not a, a new thought. Um, it is quite a common thought, particularly in libertarian circles. Um, I was thinking of reading uh, a part of uh, Murray Rothbard, who is in many ways the patron saint of anarcho-capitalism, wrote an essay called Kids Live, where he basically said that uh, you know kids have the right to, to, to leave whatever families they find displeasing, which I certainly wouldn't uh, support, but that was a, you know, a very strong position within libertarianism. And uh, uh, that is surprising. Uh, it's surprising. But it's still surprising for me when I talk about that as, as uh, yeah, I don't go that far as, as he goes. I think that displeasure is not a, a significant uh, reason for uh, you know, ditching long-term relationships like, like familial ones. Uh, or discontent or whatever. I think it, you know, it's much more serious than that. Um, uh, Hayek, you know, when I say the state is an effect of the family, um, which, you know, we, you can go into podcasts if you want to, uh, to, to find out more about that statement. Um, this is something that uh, Hayek, uh, F.A. Hayek, Friedrich Hayek, Nobel Prize winning economist, was continually talking about that, um, uh, that one of the, he said the central problem that people have is they look at the state as if it is like a family, right? They look at social organization that is as, as abstract uh, and as compulsory as the state, and they mistake it for the family, right? So he would say, uh, families are all communists, right? And it's, you know, from each according to their ability, like I do podcasts, get donations, and feed my baby, 
and two each according to their needs, right? She can't make money, she consumes, right? So, uh, so the, the, the sort of communist aspect of things uh, is, uh, is what happens when people think that the government should be like the family. And uh, so when I say that the state is an effect of the family, uh, that is something that is, is pretty well accepted in many, many circles, and some very, very intelligent people uh, have uh, have said exactly the same thing. It's just that for some reason, you know, and I guess not for some reason, because like, this medium allows me to say it to people sort of live or whatever. I talk about voluntarism, so people get more, more upset about it. But there is a very, very strong uh, tradition, both in philosophy and particularly in libertarianism, uh, of uh, focusing on voluntarism and virtue and relationships. And... It is a central core, and I would say the most important aspect of Ayn Rand's writing, is the focus on the relationship between philosophy, virtue, values, and one's personal relationships. Sorry to interrupt. The there is a caller. There is a caller, and the, yeah, let me just finish this sentence, uh, which will take me about twelve minutes. Uh, it's uh, to focus on uh, where we can bring our values to life the greatest, which is not in battling abstract monsters like the state, but in uh, attempting to to. To gain intimacy and, and traction and virtue in our personal relationships, so uh, it is something that um, people, a lot of people have written about and talked about. Uh, but I guess the technology has allowed it to become a little bit more immediate through this show. But it certainly is not. Uh, I don't claim originality for all this stuff at all. So. All right, we have a collie caller, caller bell. Hello, you are on the air. Oh, hi, from Wyoming. Go ahead. I have a uh, kind of a scenario question, and uh, I know that this is a, uh, an old topic for you, and it's been beaten up, but I'm just kind of interested. I run through scenarios with a stateless society, and I come up with my mo own conclusions most of the time, but uh, just a little scenario for the uh, bad guy that gets kicked off into Never Never Land because he won't cooperate with any of, the, any of the DROs, can't buy food, he's been living in the forest, he gets tired of that. And he walks onto Stefan's roadway. And what do you do at that point? Do you use force to remove him? Or do you push him onto me, Shepherd's grocery store? How do we get rid of that person that is imposing on us without using force or violence? Well, so, the, I mean, the real question is, is, is not so much around this DRO-less vagrant, but around uh, trespassing, right? Uh, breaking up a little bit. What was that? Uh, sorry, uh, the, the question really is around trespassing, right? Yes. Uh, if the trespassing, if there isn't an easy solution of, uh, you know, move 10 feet over and everything is okay. Right. Well, um, because I'm a believer in property rights, uh, and and uh, if some guy was standing on my lawn, I mean, I go down and talk to him. Like, like the other day, I was, I was playing with Isabella, and uh, some guy just showed up standing out outside the, the, the French doors that lead to my backyard. Uh, he's just standing there. And uh, I was like, okay, who the hell is this, right? So I, I opened the door, like I didn't shoot him, right? And I didn't call the cops. I opened the door and said, can I help you, right? And he's like, oh yeah, um, I've come to recede your lawn. I, we have a contract, because it's a pretty big lawn, and we have a contract for people who come and sort of Seed, seed our lawn, right? And they do fertilizer and then all this kind of crap, right? It's stuff I don't know what the hell. I, I tried to do it once and end up bolting my lawn worse than my forehead. But uh, uh, so, uh, so I just asked the guy, and it turns out he was there. Or if he said I'm lost or I'm crazy or you know the, the Jesus led me here or whatever, right? Then I would obviously be a little bit more cautious, and I might call 
uh, my representatives, right? So if I live uh, in a house, I'm going to have a DRO company, and I'm going to, there's going to be some contract which says, look, if someone comes onto your property, uh, don't shoot them, right? Because that's really expensive for DROs to deal with, right? That's a whole lot of mess. Yeah, they don't. They don't want you to shoot him, right? What they want to do is is to resolve the matter as as peacefully and as humanely as possible. So they would say something like, you know, if someone comes into your property, look, if he breaks into your house and he's wielding a machete, you can shoot him, and you know, we'll stand by you, right? Obviously, right? Because they they don't want to uh, restrict people from basic self-defense. Because the whole point of the arrow is is to not restrict that. So they would say, look, give us a call, right? And, and just about everyone would, right? I don't want to, you know, some crazy guy is, uh, uh, I don't know, whacking himself in the nads with nunchucks on my front lawn. I'm just going to call someone because I'm not a big one for those kinds of, of confrontations. And I'll go to the wall for ideas. But when it comes to fisticuffs, I'm sort of like a, uh, an anime Japanese schoolgirl character. So uh, so I would, I would call my DRO. My DRO would come along and they would say, what are you doing and whatever. And if the guy refused to leave, then yeah, they would be... Uh, they would be uh, justified, in my opinion, in, uh, in using force to move him uh, off of my property. There's not much point having property if everybody can wander onto it, right? So I don't believe that you shoot someone leaning on your fence, right? That, to me, would be completely immoral. But if somebody is, is acting in an invasive or dangerous way on your property, then absolutely, people have the right to, to, to get that person off your property. I would generally prefer it if my DRO would um, would use a tranquilizer dart or, or something, you know, some way of disabling the guy without pain. And the reason for that is that human fallibility is fundamental to life. Uh, everybody makes mistakes and people can misinterpret, people can fly off the handle, people can do things which seem sensible in the moment and turn out to regret. Like if I shot this guy in my backyard and it turns out that he had a right to be there because I had a contract with him to receive my lawn, then I would be guilty of murder, right? And uh, so. The DROs are very much would very much be around recognizing mistakes can be made, and so doing the least invasive, least problematic, least violent thing that they could do to solve the problem. If it like if it turns out some guy is, is mentally ill, and then you you don't want to shoot the guy, right? You want to get him back to a hospital or to a, some sort of facility where he can be taken care of. Or if it turns out, sorry, go ahead. Uh, in this scenario, in, in you know my in my crazy scenario that I've come up with, uh, this is a person that uh, where does the DRO move them to? They take them to Mr. Johnson's property, and Mr. Johnson says, "I don't want them either." Uh, this is a person that's been cast out of society. Uh, do we go and look for the uh, the commons forest? But I believe in our perfect society, there wouldn't be a commons forest. Every uh, square inch of land would be owned. By some oh, no, 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 there's no, no, sorry, there's no way that every square inch of land would be owned. I mean, do you realize that, that in the United States, the human populated areas represent about 2% of the whole country? Right. Right, so there's no way, like, for instance, up here in, like, for instance, there's no way that, that in Alaska everybody would own everything, because most of it, who cares, right? It's just ice and, and wildflowers, right, and caribou drawings. Right, so, so there's no way that everyone would own everything. There would be some land that would just be not worth having, not worth being, right? And so this guy would have to have some kind of home. He would have to have some kind of base, right? I mean, he's not likely to just be wandering around in the woods, right? Or if he was, they'd say, well, where do you wander around? They'd say, oh, wander around in these woods. They'd say, well, nobody owns those, so we'll, we'll put you back in those woods. Or if he has a little home in the middle of nowhere, they'd say, listen, don't come back, uh, and we're going to drop you off at your home, right? 
so, so, but there's no way that everything would be owned. Uh, it, it, you know, maybe I don't know, maybe in Monaco or something where you know it's just a, I don't know Luxembourg where it's really small. But there's no way that that every bit of land is is uh, is going to be owned. Uh, just because, I mean, so, so much of land is just not worth that much to anyone. It's too remote. There's no roads. There's, there's no farming or whatever. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you for your uh, time and insight. And as always, uh, thank you for providing such wonderful brain food. I really love it. Hi. Thank you. That's very, very kind. I, I do appreciate that. And, uh, uh, and, and you know, if, if you just, just as a general principle, unless... James, do we have another call? Pardon me? Sock puppet on 818. Do we have any other callers? Are we done? You can um, squeeze let's it. Let's see if we can bring in this 818 area code, see if they're alive. All right. Palindrome me, baby. 818, are you there? Are you miming? Is it Morse code? I hear breathing. I really do. No, that's me. Have you fallen and you can't get up? All right. So if you want, we can squeeze in one more caller at 347-633-96. Three six. We have time for Uno more caller. She is using flags. That's right. She may be attempting to land a plane. Oh, here we go. Maybe she thinks that the video is two way. Here we go. Two zero eight. Two zero eight. All right. Hello, it's uh, Stefan Molyneux. You are live, baby, live. Hello, am I on the air? You sure are. Hi there. My name's Cindy. I'm from Idaho. Um, James Cox is pressuring me to call in because I have a few viewpoints that might be interesting to you guys. Um, I totally agree with Ayn Rand. I've read a few of her different works and her philosophy on capitalism. However, I think she's 1,000% off on her take of God and religion. Um, and the reason why I say that is because I think that at the time that she wrote her books, um, not much was known about my particular brand of fate. And if she would have been introduced to my particular brand of fate, then she would have actually joined my church. And, that and what might is your be particular a, brand of faith? What was that? And what is your particular brand of faith? I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Right. Okay. Go on. And why do you think that Ayn Rand would have been a fan of uh, the, the Mormon approach? Well, for one, like her, her um, its philosophy about original sin, I believe is 1,000% correct. She, she was completely right on with original sin being a load of crap. Um, to tell man that he is born in the whole and that he has to make up for all of the wrongs of mankind throughout his life is, is completely ludicrous. In fact, Mormonism is exactly opposite that. When you are born, you are pure, and you are literally a child of God. And so you have within you the seeds of Godhood. And that, that part of it makes me think that it's in line with Ayn Rand's philosophy because we can become great, and what we do makes us great, and it sets us apart from all the other species on the planet. Um, and to have that inside of us, that, that power to become God, and this is just basically a proving ground for us that we can go on to greater things apart from this life, um, I think would totally fit in line with her philosophy if she were still alive and had a chance to learn about it. Well, I'm going to play, if you don't mind me using the phrase, devil's advocate position, and I'm not going to do the voice of Ayn Rand because that's really tough on the throat, both Russian and a heavy smoker. But um, I, think, I think that because she rejected original sin, 
and Mormonism rejects original sin, I don't think that means that she would be in favor of Mormonism. And I'm, again, I'm not going to obviously speak for her, but this is sort of the way that I would view it. So, for instance, you and I would reject human sacrifice, right, in the name of religion. I'm sure that, that we would both consider that to be not a good way to show your love for the Almighty, right? Mm-hmm. And, but, but just because we would both reject uh, human sacrifice doesn't mean that we would be a fan of every religion that does not perform human sacrifice, right? Mm-hmm. Right, so, so just because you both reject original sin doesn't mean that she would be a fan of Mormonism, because... Well, there's other reasons. There's a whole lot more about Mormonism that, well, for one, you know, I had this conversation with James yesterday about atheism and anarchy and how I think that in his mind, if one religion or if many religions are bad, then all are bad. And if one government or many governments are bad, then all governments are bad. That I don't believe those conclusions can be made. I think that there are there is one good religion on this earth, and I think that there is one, or at least there used to be one good government on this earth. However, our leaders of our country have corrupted it, and it has gone vastly astray. But... Um, I think that there are good things other than, you know, the fact that there's no original sin. Like, for example, um, just the fact that we can progress. That this, this life, it's not just all about the here and now. It's a step. And what, what we can become has a lot to do with what we do here, yes. But there's more to the story than just this part of it. And Christianity, unfortunately, has a lot of mistruths in it, and so do all other religions of the world. They might have some truths, like, for example, you know, Muslims don't believe in drinking alcohol, which I actually think is a good thing, and Mormons believe that same thing. However, other, other religions have a tendency to, you know, put their own truths into them, which aren't really true. Like, for example, um, how Muslims practice polygamy and they downgrade women. I don't agree with that. Um, but there, there are churches out there that have more truth than others, and there is one church that has more truth than any other tr- tr- you know, church on this earth, and that's mine. Um, and I'm okay, saying, and uh, sorry to interrupt, because I mean, you, you raise a very interesting question, and, and I'm sure you're aware that everybody who's in a church believes that their tr- church has the most truth than other religions have. Well, most Less people, truth, actually, but... you're wrong. Most people don't, they treat religion like it's a fraternity. They treat, oh, well, just come, you're just supposed to come and agree with me on this. Well, there's actually a way to know the truth, and that's by asking God himself. What a novel idea. You know, if there is a God, and he, if he does care about you, then he should actually desire to answer a prayer and let you know about his existence. A lot of people, that thought doesn't even occur to them. I'm not asking so, you... So, sorry, sorry, if I understand it correctly, you're, sorry, but if I understand it correctly, what you're saying is that uh, the people, the, the Mormons ask God what the truth is, and God tells the Mormons, and either Christians don't ask God what the truth is, or, or they get some wrong answer. A lot of the times they don't. They pick their, their, you know, church based on where it is located to their house and if they like the pastor or not. They don't pick the church based on, are these doctrines true? They don't even think on those lines. Wait, 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 how, how do they know whether the doctrines, how do, how, how do they know whether the doctrines are true? You can study and you can pray. And that's what everything in this world But don't you, think that all, don't you think that all religious people study and pray? I mean, uh, certainly no. I know that Muslims uh, study no, like crazy. No, I've had many... 
I've had many conversations with Catholics, and their answer is, that is not something we're supposed to understand in this life. And that's baloney. I personally think that reason and logic are gifts from God, and that most Christians ignore those things, and they act as if they can't work in conjunction with faith. But actually, they're wrong. Reason and logic are gifts from God, and they are meant to get you closer to God. But it is through the misapplication of those tools that lead men astray. And so, okay, uh, so can you, can you tell me um, uh, a, 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 a Mormon argument based on reason and evidence that is not followed by some other religion? Um, baptism for the dead, for example. In the New Testament, there's references to baptism for the dead. And the reason I picked that one is because Jesus was baptized and he said that, you know, all men should follow him. Um, and some churches have, you know, said, oh, yeah, baptism is necessary, but they don't account for what if you died without baptism. Well, there are references in the New Testament to baptism with, for the dead, and in the Mormon church there's baptisms for the dead, that that ordinance has been restored, and that there is a way to give that particular commandment to be baptized to people that have lived this life and not had that chance. But uh, you understand that, from, again, I understand where you're coming from, and I certainly don't doubt your sincerity, but you understand that from a philosophical standpoint, the writings in a religious book have nothing to do with reason and evidence. Maybe for most books, they have nothing to do with reason. To see well, but for... Sorry, here's, here's the thing. Either Jesus Christ really is the Son of God, or he's not. Um, I'm, I'm making the contention that there's one way for people to know that truth, and it's not through searching, you know, the areas of your own mind, because that, tr that truth is not within your brain, and it's not, you're, you're not born with it. It's something you have to learn and something you have to come to. Um, and I'm saying that to know that truth, you have to petition the Creator for that knowledge. And right, so you can't, use reason, you, can't, you, sorry, you can't use reason and evidence for that, right? I mean, that's a matter of fact. You can you can use reason, but you have to combine it with faith. Reason alone will no, lead you. No, because if you could use reason and evidence, you wouldn't need to talk to God, right? Well, like I don't need God to tell me that the world is round because there's reason and evidence that it is, right? There's plenty of reason and evidence that there is a God, and there's plenty of ways to deny it. And I'm sure you you're all you know adequately prepared to give me all of those reasons. But I'm telling uh, you, I, I, would, I would love to have the conversation, but unfortunately we are now about 30 seconds away from ending the show, so um, perhaps you could, uh, you could call in again and we could, uh, we could go through right. some of those. All right, I'll do that. I'll do that. Okay, I'll do that. All right. Thank you. All right, well, time. thank you. I appreciate that. And sure. uh, it will also give me a chance to, to look a bit more uh, up on, uh, on Mormonism and, uh, and figure out why I keep turning away these people who come to my door. Uh, so uh, thank you, everybody, so much. Uh, I appreciate it. Uh, it is... Um, uh, wonderful to hear from all the new voices. This is the Freedom Main Radio Sunday call-in show. Please drop past freedomainradio.com for tons of tons of free podcasts, free books, uh, free websites, uh, free chat room, and uh, I hope that reason, evidence, truth, wisdom, and virtue will make you as happy as they've made me, and I hope if uh, there's anything I can do to accelerate that process, please let me know at host at freedomainradio.com. All the best, my beauties. Stefan Molyneux out. Have yourselves an absolutely Wonderful week.